There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Wednesday, January 10th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Erna Solberg, the Prime Minister of Norway, met with President Trump, the President of America, today. In a press availability, the two world leaders gave each other three cheers for their respective red, white, and blues. Uh, We were just discussing with the Prime Minister, we make the greatest military equipment in the world, and you buy a lot of it, and we appreciate that. Mm. It's called jobs. But it's also called great equipment. You know, Norway Norway contributes to, I think we have estimated it, supports up to 470,000 jobs. 470,000 jobs? It seems high. Not for America. We barely notice. We're big. But Norway is small, cold and small. Norway, over 5 million people, a little over 5 million people. So really, she's talking about almost 10% of the Norwegian population as represented in U.S. jobs. How do 5 million Norwegians have the time and energy to support 470,000 jobs here in America? So I found out. My investigation took me to Norway, specifically the town of Hamar. Where, interesting note, you will find the Hamar Kamaratin, literally the Hammer Comrades, often abbreviated to the Hamcam. The Hamcam play in the Norwegian Premier League, and of course, when opposing clubs face Hamcam, the cry rings out, boys, we've trained for this very moment. It's stop Hamar time. But why boys? Why do I say boys? Hamar also boasts a top women's soccer team whose name translates from their Norwegian words for the football team's speed. Now, you probably speak Norwegian, and I have to tell you what this is. This is the famous Norwegian female football team, Fart. Fart represents Hamar. The home matches are played in the Fart Banna. The women's team is better than the men's team, but even the women fart ain't great. Here, here's something from Wikipedia and 44 ma- matches in the top division. Fart has one draw and 43 losses, holds the record for most matches without a victory. So Fart stinks. But that was not only a riff on digestion, but also, I should admit, a digression. I, uh, you know, what am I supposed to do? Not tell you about Fart once I get wind of them? Anyway, I tracked down those stats the prime minister was talking about. And it is true. The United States of America, according to these uh, Norwegian statistics, Uh, Norway supports 469,000 total jobs in America. How? 32 supported by Norwegian companies. That makes sense. They open a branch office here and the Americans work there. 22,000 jobs supported by exports of goods. I get that. We buy or Norway buys some Alaskan fish. Weird that they do, but they do a million and a half dollars worth of Alaskan fish. Those fishermen can be said to have jobs supported by Norway. But here's the big thing. Of the 470,000, 390,000 of these jobs are supported by their Norwegian sovereign fund, the Norwegian Wealth Fund. And what the Norwegian Wealth Fund is, is they make a lot of money in Norway from oil and they keep the money. They, They give it. Alaska does this too. But they essentially invest it and the people of Norway all collectively own this fund. And it's worth a trillion dollars, a trillion dollars. They own $5 billion in Google Alphabet. They own $7.4 billion worth of Apple stock. In fact, 1.3% of all the stock in the world is owned by this Norwegian sovereign fund. And they work for good. They use their shares to vote for better gender pay or to narrow the gender wage 
gap and to increase corporate governance. They would like these companies to kind of run as a Scandinavian company. I mean, Facebook's not taking it, but there is Norway because they own so many shares of Facebook throwing its weight behind a report on the gender pay gap. The fund, like I said, is worth a trillion. That's bigger than the Mexican economy. And if you work it out for every man, woman, and child in Norway, they are worth $190,000 because of their birthright, because of this fund. So the president of Norway there was standing next to Donald Trump in a press conference. She witnessed him inexpertly parrying reporters' questions into the Russia investigation. When asked about Russian relations in her country, the Norwegian prime minister cited cooperation. Norway works with the Russians. Here's a specific issue she talked about. We have a, a very large cooperation on uh, sustainable fisheries in this area. It's the biggest cod area in the world. Cod. So that's what the Norwegians worry about when they worry about Russia. Russia screws with their cod. In America, we worry about Russia screwing with our elections. Pretty similar. And I told you about the 190000 that each Norwegian gets as a share of the wealth fund or, you know, would get were they to liquidate or something. You know, other, other stats about Norway compared to the United States, their per capita income's higher. Norway has a third the crime. Opiate use in Norway, lowest in the world. They have a higher life expectancy. The USA has four times the obesity rates. And the Norwegians just tend to be positive. Although actually, the USA has more people of the blood type B positive. I don't know why. They're ranked as number one in the world. Norway is seventh. And you always see these press conferences. They're pretty much the only time Trump takes questions from the press. So another leader will be standing next to Donald Trump and, you know, will be smiling through Trump's denials because they have to. They need us. But I ask, does Norway... Norway is one place where the leader standing there during this press conference is definitely thinking, I would not change places with you. Here in America, we go on and on and on about the USA being the greatest. And I love it. All my friends are here. We invented the hat where you put a couple beers in and drink it with the straw. But Norway has a pretty good case as a pretty great country, maybe the best. If you did that test, that John Rawls test, where you ask, where would you want to be randomly born into any strata of the population? I find it very difficult to think that a fair-minded observer would pick the United States over Norway. And I think if the United States wants to change, it needs to do a bunch of things differently. Or maybe it could just keep doing one thing the same, which is not educating the citizens about the status of the rest of the world, because that seems to be working so far. On the show today, I spiel about translations. Yeah, I was so enamored by the fart thing, I just went on an international language spree. But first, the hosts of the self-help immersion podcast by the book come by. Can you really live better through paperbacks? I, as a creature unlike any other, tend to doubt it. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where 
McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. By the Book is a panoply podcast in which our two hosts, our two intrepid hosts, take a book and they live by it. Now, when this was a picture book or a book of poetry, it was hard. And so then they decided what we're going to do is self-help books. That, uh, you know, more of a guide to life. The two hosts are Kristen Meinzer and Jolenta Greenberg. They have transformed their lives and in the process ours. Hello, guys. How are you? Hey, Mike. Hi. Thanks for having us on. I know what your first book was and your first experiment, but that's not necessarily where the idea came from. So where did the idea come from and how did you decide on the first book to do it with? Oh, it sprung from the mind of the great Jolenta Greenberg, and she uh -huh. just invited me to tag along on this journey. So, Jolenta, you tell everybody. Oh, stop. Um, I'm a, you know, a comedian that has trouble holding down a real job. I spend a lot of my life feeling like, you know, in the conventional sense, a failure. Mm -hmm. So, uh, at the time I was working just for... Just as judged yeah. by the standards of, like, income and success. Yeah, and, and like, having yeah. a job. Right, right, right. right you yeah. know. Societal. What yeah. society puts yeah. on you, right? So, at the time I was working working for a news organization that got sent a lot of books. You just when you work in news you get sent yes. tons of books. Books about news, current events, and also books about self-help and nothing. And I used to hoard all the self-help books and be like, someday I'm going to like read all of these and change my life. And then I was like, or I could just make a podcast with my friend Kristen and then we could read all these together. So was this, was so you you like self-help books? Yeah, I'm always I'm very intrigued by them. I'm very intrigued with the idea that I can pick up a book and it can tell me how to live my life in a way that makes me feel like I don't suck. Mm -hmm. And I I wanted Kristen's perspective on all these things because we've been friends for many years at this point and she's one of the most functioning adult friends I've always had. Like, she always has a real job. She owns property. She can recommend a lawyer to you. So like, you're saying she has her shit together. Yeah, so I always, yeah. I need her as sort of a litmus test, like, is this helpful or, like, detrimental? Do you like self-help books, Kristen? Well, I went into them thinking they were idiotic yeah. and just snake oil and that there were a lot of charlatans writing these books. And initially, I just came along for the ride with Jolenta because I didn't want her to suddenly be consulting crystals in order to decide what to wear every day. So you were there and to run interference. You were there to protect her. I was hoping so. Yeah. I mean, Jolenta, bless your heart. I love you. But you do a lot of things by lighting candles and making decisions that way. And I'm like... I am here to help. I am here to help. I'm going to apply logic to this process, yes. But, but I will say that reading a lot of these books has opened my mind mm -hmm. in ways I did not expect. And one of the things I've taken away from living by so many of these books is that they actually do have a good place in our world. And one of the main things I've taken away is that I understand why women in particular are drawn to these books. And part of that is because in traditional, historic, 
medical environments, women have been treated as other. Men are the ones 18 to 35, white male, we're going to do a study and you're going to... They're the norm. Yeah, they are the norm. And I think so much of the self-help industry has sprung up for women who need a place where their needs are taken seriously. So you're saying that uh, for a man writing a check to yourself for a million dollars and not cashing it, for a man that has been in double-blind studies proven not to work, but for <laughs> totally. a woman... For male bodies, that's been proven. For, yes. Right, right. Yeah. For, for those with a Y chromosome. Yeah, yeah, we don't know. The, <laughs> the science is out on the secret. We'll never know. <laughs> yeah. No, so you, you say these books have opened your mind. Was there a, a gateway book? Was there one that convinced you? There's actually one book I really love that we lived by, and Jolenta makes fun of me for this all the time because it actually just confirms everything I love about myself. The book is called America's Cheapest Family Gets You Right on the Money <laughs> by Steve and Annette Economides. And I like Your to think... Economides. I know, isn't, isn't that, that crazy? Yeah, yeah. They're this Christian family with a whole bunch of children who... I'm going to guess Greek Orthodox, but that's just, <laughs> that's just profiling. And they... <laughs> own everything outright. They have zero debt. They own their houses, their cars, and they are just cheap, 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 cheap. And I am cheap as can be. And reading this book, it just confirmed, like, I am living my life right. I love that I spend less than $12 a year on haircuts, and so do they. I love everything they're telling me that I'm doing is right. It speaks to your upper Midwest sensibility. I like to think so. Yeah, it speaks to your logic. But a lot of these books speak to the soul. They, if they have an insight, it's not literally what they're aiming to have an insight for. It's just they've figured out what we're anxious about and mostly what women are anxious about because that's their buying. And they know how to somehow address that anxiety. And once you're like, yeah, I'm like that, they're 80% of the way there to seeming like a good self-help book. Yeah, I think there's that to it. But then also a listener wrote into us recently with just the smartest take on self-help books. And what she was saying is she likes to think that every self-help book is some crazy person's memoir in how to deal with their crazy Mm. that they are selling Mm -hmm. as a how-to list instead. So, for example, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo, she more or less admits in the book that she has a mental illness related to cleanliness. She and talks clutter. about going home as like a young schoolgirl and crying and like organizing and crying. Organizing and crying and, and organizing and crying. It's, it's very like kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. And so she essentially just They took... called the book that it would sell worse. <laughs> yeah. Organizing and yeah. crying. The heartbreaking yeah. magic of tidying yeah. up. Yeah. But she was essentially taking her coping mechanism for dealing with her particular fixation and then released it as a self-help book. And a lot of the books kind of seem to fit into mm-hmm. that mold of I took something that I have a major issue with, and then I found a really nutty way to deal with it, and here's a self-help book for you. There's been self-help books for many years, but I at least perceive the genre to be exploding. There's always the self-help book of the moment, but there just seem to be so many more of them. And my diagnosis would be that modern life causes so much anxiety. Social media causes so much anxiety. The human body was not meant to absorb uh, stimuli at the rate we're asked to absorb stimuli. So we seek out another form of stimuli, which is a self-help book. And by the way, I, I, three or four of your episodes, a basic tenant is to deplug from social media, right? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, that's yeah. like a number one thing to say. Yeah. I mean, with Bored and Brilliant, our first book from this second season, that's the whole premise. It's just like different ways to unplug and try to spark like your own original thoughts again. Right. And you, uh, you, Joe Lenta, you mm-hmm. were, was it a Facebook or an Instagram absolute addict? 
You didn't do Instagram, right, Chris? I do Instagram yeah. more. Jolenta's and very Kristen does the Facebook right. more. Yeah. yeah. Unplugging worked for you each in different degrees? Yeah. I think so. It wasn't as hard for me as I thought it would be, but I also, you know, it hasn't stuck. So. Yeah. I mean, the I thing know. that was hardest for both me and Jolenta was the app that that book told us to put onto our phones. And this app kind of makes you feel guilty and horrible it about yourself all your every time you turn your phone on. And then the app starts crying. There's this very upset face. It sends face. you face. It, like, it sends yeah. you emoji based on... Is it Marie on... Kondo's face? No. <laughs> it's just an emoji <laughs> face, but it'll like send you like a worried face if you're in the red. And, right. You know. Oh, so it's battling the anxiety of too much technology. Technology by, with an by anxiety. promoting anxiety yeah. uh, via technology. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also sense that all of these cures, of course, you feel better and reinvigorated. But it's not a long-term strategy. It's like um, it's like a fad diet where, mm-hmm. of course, you're going to put the weight on after you know, weeks or months. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up fad diets because one book we lived by, French Women Don't Get Fat, really, really drives that point home. The book supposedly, it claims that it's about mindful eating and about the joy of eating and only eating things that give you joy, essentially, and eating it in small quantities. But like all diet books, it has some crazy components to it. The first 48 hours, we had to live on water, essentially, the water that comes off of boiled leeks. So you can boil leeks on the stove and then drink that leek water for 48 hours. But the book doesn't set you up for long-term success for weight management. Before you know it, you're back shopping yeah. again for another diet book and then another diet you've book. You've gained and then back another that diet water book. weight you lost in the two days you starved yourself. Yes. And so, yeah, absolutely. Diet books in particular, we found to be problematic. And we decided after living by that book that we are never going to do another diet book on the show again. Right. It's oh, a fine awesome. It's a fine line between being what you said, like, what can it hurt? And like, this is detrimental. You shouldn't be telling people to do this. You have done very popular books. You've done Marie Kondo's book. What are the other really popular ones you've lived by? Uh, the Secret. Oh, the yeah. Little Book of Hugga. Yeah, oh, that yeah, one's oh, really Oh, that one big. is huge. That That's has like 14,000 co- reviews. The Danish yeah. coziness book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that yeah. was probably our biggest hit so far. That's people crazy went nuts me, for that. Yeah, they want to really wear scarves and eat cookies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and which really obscure books did you do? Well, season one, our listeners kept on asking us, please do an ebook, please do an ebook. And so we decided to kind of go meta and end season one by following a book called How to Write an Ebook in Less Than Seven to Fourteen Days That Will Make You Money Forever. Yeah. So we read an ebook about how to write ebooks and then we tried to make money forever off of those ebooks. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked about this, but there's no such thing as less than seven to fourteen days. Oh. No, and you're actually in that <laughs> yeah. episode, Mike, because you named my book for me. Oh right. Do you I remember forgot about that. Do you remember what you named my book? Was it uh Amish Paradise? What was it? Was it was called Return to Intercourse, Return an to Amish intercourse. romance. Yes, because yeah. the whole book is an Amish romance it's, novel. Is it a Rumspringa journey to the self? Sarah is on her Rumspringa with an aspiring NASCAR driver named Tanner Chase. Oh, man. And then she's Chase. called back home because of a tragic barn raising accident. Yeah. And there, Aren't they all? a mysterious farmhand named Ezekiel catches her eye and then her heart oh, is no. torn. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Tanner. <laughs> so from reading all the books that you have, do you think you have an idea of the formulas that work? I mean, if you were to write your own book that wasn't the romance novel, but mm-hmm. if you were to use everything you know from having immersed yourself in the genre, what are some common traits of the really successful books that A, hook a reader, and B, help a reader? They have to start with a really good story about 
the author, right? Okay. They're all They all pretty much start with the like, you'll never believe what happened to me, or like, I pulled myself up from blah, blah. Yeah. Like, they all start with the low moment. Yeah. yeah. And I was going to say another thing that I think makes a book actually successful and stick more is that it acknowledges that everybody is different. Yeah. So the books that claim that this is the number one only guaranteed way to do ABC, that immediately gets me raising my eyebrows because I'm like, uh-uh, there's no such thing as a number one only singular guaranteed way to fix everybody's life. You know, if you don't eat after 8 p.m., this is the one guaranteed way to be thin. No. If you wake up before this time, this is the one guaranteed way to be most productive. If you do this one thing, it's the one guaranteed way. No, I think that the books that are most successful acknowledge that we are different as humans and we function in different ways. And to go back to America's Cheapest Family. I, I, would, I will hand it to them there. Yeah, they actually give you three different levels for every one of their steps. So they give you about 10 steps of what you can do. And then under those steps, they say, if you're this type of person, do it this way. If you're this type of person, do it this way. And if you're somebody like Kristen Meinzer who hates spending money, do it this way. You live in Costco. Yes, that's right. So then what's the secret of the secret? Because it doesn't seem like I never read the book. I just... Uh, Power of positive thinking. Right. But they it does it really tailor it for people? The secret just seems to be... It's a steaming pile of malarkey. <laughs> it's a it's general a really wash bad with lots book. of like suggestions about vision boards, writing yourself check, just anything where you can project positivity into the future, whether it be visually or otherwise. And the reason why so many rich and famous people love that book is because it's all confirmation bias, because it says right. mm-hmm. you get back what you put into the world. So is it right. any wonder that somebody like Will Smith loves it? Because or Jim Carrey. Or, yeah, any of those people who say that they love this kind of self-help because it confirms like, oh, I must have been thinking the right way because that's why I'm filthy rich and famous. The secret is your success is deserved. Don't yes. you worry, mm-hmm. Will and Oprah and Jim. Yeah. Is this where it's going to end up? Are you going to write a self-help book, you guys? I mean, I don't want to. maybe we'll just <laughs> be bad. like perfect at the end of this and we'll float off into the clouds. We'll have to stay tuned. I'll and see. know we're done with this project, but I have no more problems, right? Yeah, yeah. Joe Lenta Greenberg and Kristen Meinzer are the co-hosts of Buy the Book, a panoply podcast that tells you, grabs you by the throat, and tells you how to live your life. No, it's much gentler than that. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. Mike. And now the spiel found in translation. Bro, you have to spot me. My dad made an awesome deal for your dad, bro. He fought in the Knesset for this, bro. That's Yair Netanyahu on a tape that recently surfaced. He, then 24 years old and the scion of the Benjamin Netanyahu family, was out with friends at a strip club. He's one of these doofuses who thinks the stripper fell in love with him. And he's begging his friend, who's the son of a billionaire who his dad did business with. He's begging his friend for what amounts to 400 shekels, about 120 bucks, for the company of a stripper. These tapes just came out. And Haaretz, I read the translation, and it says, Bro, my dad arranged a $20 billion show for you, and you can't spot me, you know, 400 shekels. Now, here's the thing. I went to the actual recordings, and I will play some of them for you. (laughs) And I asked myself, of all the things I learned that the younger Netanyahu was saying, what's the most damning? Is it the strippers? Is it the casual references to big money deals his dad made? Is it the time he threatened his security guard with murder or essentially laughed it off, saying you'll be murdered if this gets out? Those are pretty damning. 
But you know what the most damning thing is? Bro. Him calling everyone bro. There is really no coming back from bro. But is it fair? So I went to the tapes and I talked to a Hebrew translator. Shelby. She works a few desks down for me. Very nice. Achi. Achi is what he's saying. And it really means brother. You'd be saying it, Achi, has existed in Hebrew, in modern Hebrew, for years and years and years. In fact, it predates bro. You know, it means man, or it means dude, or it means my brother. And I think the most insidious thing that it can be translated to mean is bro. But once the bro gets attached to the son, I think the scandal is solidified. Elsewhere in the world, Emmanuel Machon is in China where his name transliterates, which is you just take the syllables or roughly the sounds of Macron, translates to the horse that beat the dragon. What? It's the ma in Macron and the ke, and then they don't have a hon sound, so they translate that to long. And yes, I talked to a person who speaks Chinese, and reads Chinese, a little bit of Chinese, Mandarin, in my office. Shasha, she's great. A few desks down from me, in between me and Shelby, if you need to know the actual layout. And she says, oh, yes, that's my brother's name, Ma. That's the horse. And, of course, all good Chinese people, no matter what their level of uh, education, know how to recognize the symbol for dragon. So, yeah, I say, yep, it pretty much means the horse that beats the dragon. But depending on the news outlet where you read this, it comes off like the horse that vanquishes the dragon or the horse that subdues or defeats or overpowers. And I think the more archaic that verb is, the more it seems like an actual prophecy. He shall be the horse who vanquished the dragon. That's chilling. But if you said, oh yeah, that was the horse that kicked the dragon's ass, I don't know, it doesn't sound so portentous, shall we say. And what did Machon give as a gift to the Chinese people? A horse. That's right. Seems like a ballsy move. Of course, the horse was a gelding. Finally, speaking of male parts, Catherine Deneuve, and it's so sad because the appellation that is often applied to her is once considered among the world's most beautiful women. And that that once, it's just like a shiv, isn't it? That's why I never went for that people's sexiest man alive. Because I, I forecast 30 years down the line and they'd stop saying it or, or only mention it in retrospect. Anyway, she's not on board with the French version of the Me Too movement. A hand on the knee, a flirtatious remark, it is very French. A be-bathrobed Harvey Weinstein, ah, that is a bit more disgusting, yes. But what attracted me or what enthralled me is the name, the hashtag in French. And by the way, Pierre, have I been doing Machon pretty good? Uh, it's pretty good. It's a tricky one because that last syllable is one of the three nasal ones in French. So it would be, how would you say it? So it's Macron. Macron. I'm, I'm hitting the N a little too much. It's good. Okay, so this is what they call the Me Too movement. Balance ton pour. Balance, like it would be the word balance, T-O-N-P-O-R-C. Balance ton pour. Or how would you say it? Balance ton pour. So you would not fret over it. By the way, these are the benefits of having a Pierre Bien-Aimé as a producer. Thank you, Pierre. And what balance ton pot means is expose your pig. Exposing your pig. Isn't that what led to the problem in the first place? Put away your hog, bro. Balance ton pot. I, I looked it up. Oh, by the way, balance, Pierre tells me, is like throw away or chuck. Cast off, chuck your pig, chuck your pork. Nothing seems to me to be leading to a more exalted status for women. I looked up the uh, balance ton pork in Google Translate. It said tonal balance your pork. I'm actually more comfortable with that. You know, just spending some time making sure the shading is right around the snout. 
balance your pork, throw away your pig, expose your pig. As Yair Netanyahu might say, oi, bro, oi. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who promises not to unleash his panda. How would you say that in French? Lance ton panda. <laughs> Lance ton panda? Yeah, spelled the same way, panda. Mary Wilson is the just senior producer, and she knows it's wrong to flaunt her water buffalo. Fais voir ton buffle. Steve Lichtai had season tickets to FL Fart. They weren't winning. They needed some fan support. They needed some wind beneath their wings. They're not going to toot their own horns. The gist, the Chinese transliteration of our name is the bear that got stuck inside the Volkswagen. Yun Peru, Peru, Du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>